Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, where every month is Women's History Month. Uh, I am Lauren Humphreys Brooks. With me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Um, hello. How are you doing on this this fine day? What's the weather report in California? Uh, it's overcast. It's 50 degrees. Oh, sorry. Officially, it's partly sunny, not overcast. So, it's, yeah. It's different. There's not a partly sunny. Well, overcast means you can't really see any sky. Okay. Today, I see, I see fluffy clouds. Ah, uh, must be nice. So, yeah. I don't see much sky, but there's a little bit up there. The clouds that I do see, though, are dark. I think it's going to rain. How's the weather guys, in New York? I thought you guys didn't get rain. You know, that is a lie. We get <laughs> about a quarter of an inch a year. No, I'm just kidding. No, it actually, when it rains, it rains a lot. Just not very often. I mean, based upon my viewing of film noirs that are like set in LA and environs, my understanding is that it either rains all the time in LA or it never rains in LA. <laughs> One or the other. Um, there is this horror movie um, that I saw at a film festival a few years ago. And it was supposed to be set in L.A. And I was like, this movie is definitely not in L.A. Because the torrential, sustained torrential downpour throughout like the whole climax. I was like, that that does not happen here ever. <laughs> and so that's how you know when something is actually filmed in L.A. Or when it's not. Or when people who are making it know anything about the weather in L.A. <laughs> uh, well, here in New York, it is also, I guess, yeah, it's, it's overcast, I would say. Although it is getting warmer here. It's supposed to be in the 70s tomorrow, which I am, like, wow. horrified by. Yeah, this is not normal for March. We is usually, it going to be I mean, warmer there than it is here? It might be. I don't know. We're supposed to get a lot of rain, and but, like, 70 degrees. So, yeah. Um, uh, yay, climate change. Uh, <laughs> climate change isn't real. <laughs> Nothing is real. It's all it's all a simulacrum. Uh, <laughs> speaking of simulacrums, let's talk about the Oscars again for one brief, like, shining moment. Because, of course, the Oscars are continuing to, like, just have all kinds of fallout from some of the decisions that have been made. But one of the more... Not shocking particularly, but I think, I guess it's kind of shocking in the sense that um, they're kind of saying it out loud, uh, is, 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 comes from a recent report from The Hollywood Reporter, which buries the lead in a pretty massive way. <laughs> um, it, it gets, you know, there, there's kind of all this breakdown of kind of what is going on with the Oscars and the fact that all of these categories have been removed from the live telecast, as we discussed before. 
um, how different you know branches of the the guild have reacted to this, all of this, and then like a paragraph midway down the page, which a lot of people have picked up on and been like, wait a minute, this is something we need to talk about. Um, and and what is what it says is that uh, the governor of a branch that has lost a category from the live telecast. Um, says he was jarred when he received a call explaining why significant changes to the format of the Oscars were necessary. This governor says that he was told that ABC had warned the Academy it would cancel the Oscars telecast via a clause in the Academy and ABC's deal for broadcasting rights if 12 categories were not removed from the show. So according to this guy, and he's, he's remaining anonymous, so you know that we have to note that this is you know an anonymous source, this is not necessarily verified, but uh, there doesn't seem to be much reason to lie on this one, is essentially saying that ABC threatened to cancel the telecast completely if they didn't make these changes, which is really not a good thing. Like this, this is, first of all, I didn't even know that they were capable of doing that. Um, I didn't know that they had that kind of a deal where they could literally just cancel the Oscars completely. Well, it's like uh, NBC canceling the Golden Globes over the HFPA's, uh -huh. like, refusal to change, and then they finally did, but too late. The show was already canceled. Um, so, yeah, any of these these networks, like, I don't, I don't, I wasn't as surprised as I think a lot of people were that they have the ability to do it. I was surprised and deeply disappointed that they actually made that threat and that the threat worked. Basically, because yeah. I was talking to someone yesterday who, um, uh, has a lot of connections to people that know about what's happening behind the scenes. And um, that person will remain anonymous. And um, it's, it's not basically what it seems like is happening here is that ABC and the Academy are playing a game of chicken and the Academy blinked. Because yeah. what would ABC really do if the Academy just said, no, we're not going to make those changes. We're just going to go on. If the show goes over, it goes over. Is the is ABC really going to pull the plug and just end the broadcast and go straight to whatever local programming is supposed to be on? No, they're not going to do that. Well, and that's what's so... I guess what I find disturbing about this is that it, it is kind of, in a certain sense, it's saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. That... Um, you know, that this is really about ratings, that this is about getting people to watch. And, you know, as we remarked last week, I think we remarked a, a couple of times, actually, the Oscars has been losing viewership and there are a lot of different reasons for it, but the way that they're trying to correct that is just insane. And, you know, several people pointed out that, um, the that, you know, part of it might simply be that no one knows what to expect with the Oscars anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got like, we're not going to have any hosts. We're going to have one host. We're going to have three hosts, right? We're going to do, you know, all of these, these weird me internet meme things. We're not going to do that at all. We're going to go back to the basics. We're not going to go back to the basics. So no one really knows what to expect from that. And they're, they're losing viewers. They're losing kind of attention. It's not, it's not doing the numbers that they want it to, but rather than actually, it seems like they're just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And I, I honestly think that they're going to lose more 
yeah in the long run because no one knows how what to predict there are a lot of people in hollywood that are obviously very mad about what is going on mm-hmm. um and and it's it's becoming more and more like it's becoming more like the golden globes in a certain sense where it's like why did these awards matter <laughs> if the whole point is is you know to do some weird performance for a, a an audience that you don't even seem to know what audience you're going for then you know, just just do like a, a celebration of the movies every year. Why do we even have the Oscars at that point? Seriously, like if that's if that's the case, do a two hour show that's a cel- like announce all the winners at a dinner like they used to do in the beginning. I'm not advocating for this. I'm just saying, like, if this is all it's about, then what they may as well do is have a dinner, invite all the nominees to come to the dinner, they announce the winners at the dinner, and then they do a two-hour show that's just celebrating all the great movies and then, like, listing who won. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> like, it, no, that's what that's a, And that almost seems like the direction that they're going, you know? Yeah. And, and it's... it's I don't, it's weird. It's very weird. And like I say, I don't really think that it's ultimately going to work. But also, like we've said before, it's so disrespectful to all of the people who actually work on movies. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you've got, you know, people that are the presidents of um, of distributors and their producers and stuff like that. So, like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's like, no, it is. It is a fucking big deal. Because initially, we've always talked about the Oscars as being the celebration of film. And right. now it's rapidly becoming it's it's becoming a celebration of commercialism. I don't know what it's a celebration of anymore. Yeah. Um, stuff that we can sell to you on ABC. Right. Uh, and I mean, I, I think that Howard Cohen, who's the co-president of Roadside uh, Attractions, said um, and he was agreeing. Right. He was agreeing with the decisions. But what he said was um, the ceremony must change if it wants to continue on a commercial network. Probably he's right. Right. Because people are obviously not interested in watching this as much as they used to be. But the way that it's changing is a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, And it's it's just it is reaching the point like I am losing interest in watching the Oscars at all. Yeah. Well, I think the big problem, and this is something that I was talking about with my friend yesterday, was a big part of the problem is that they're so stuck on this three hours time limit. Like we can't vary from the three hours we have to make sure they keep it within three hours and last year they cut all the clips they you know messed around with the order they did all kinds of funky things and it still ran over even without all the stuff that people want and so it's like yeah okay it's it's a long show when you have 23 awards categories that's just how it is unless you like cut the speeches which no don't do that um, but the, the problem is that they're so, and I, when I say they, I'm specifically talking about ABC because I really think that ABC is more of the problem and they've got the Academy over a barrel right now because the Academy just way blew past their budget on that museum. <laughs> like they need the money. And so they're kind of just like freaking out. And I don't think that giving in to ABC's demands is necessarily the right way to go here. But I also kind of understand why, um, particularly why David Rubin, the president feels kind of stuck. I think Dawn Hudson is a big problem. She's the CEO and I've heard things about her that are like, Hmm, interesting. Um, but 
but anyway, the my point is um, that they're so stuck on the three hours that it's not it's not as much of a focus on what to do with the time. And yeah, I know they're bringing in the clips. They're going to do this like Oscars cheer moment or whatever. Oscars fan favorite, which is dumb. Um, unless Malignant gets it and then it's completely legitimate and valid. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but the thing is, it doesn't matter if the show is two hours or three hours or four hours. People are going to watch if it's interesting, not because it sticks to a specific length of time. Yeah, I mean, I remember watching, again, and I, I watch a lot of Oscars, right? And I'm on the East Coast, which means that if it runs over three hours, it is very late. And I am very tired and probably very drunk. Um, but so the most exciting elements of the Oscars are when you're just kind of like, oh, no, I have to keep watching, right? I have to keep watching because I want to see who wins. I want to see what happens next. Ooh, you know, this next musical performance is coming up, things like that. So a lot of it is really just about, I think, structuring the show correctly, not yeah. eliminating things, but being like, you know, we are going to have some, you know, I mentioned uh, the other week about, you know, Whoopi Goldberg's costumes in some of the shows that she hosted. Yes. Um, some of those, you know, where you're actually looking forward to certain things and so you keep on watching. And that's just viewer engagement, really. You know, if all you're doing is like reading out winners and you're not even showing clips of winners and things like that that's like why am i why am i watching this why do i care right but if you're keeping me entertained i'm willing i'm gonna sit there for three hours i'm going to keep on having this like big sense of an event um it's like they're trying to turn it they're trying to take something that should be this major kind of culmination of the year in movies and this big event into basically something that's kind of boring and you know just sort of like oh i can watch clips of it tomorrow and and have the same experience so sorry <laughs> yes <laughs> i was trying to look something up because the longest um the longest oscars ever was um four hours and 23 minutes Jesus Christ. in um that was the 74th academy awards it was in March of 2002. Whoopi Goldberg hosted. That was the year that Moulin Rouge was nominated. She came down on like the trapeze um, in that costume. And that was, let me think. I think that would have been the year that Chicago won. No, Beautiful Mind won. Um, and, but it's like. It just, it was a fun show. Like, I remember that show. It was fun. Like, I was watching it with friends who don't really care about this and haven't seen a lot of the movies, you know? And we were all having a big old party and we were loving it and it was fun and it was, everybody was into it. And people watched for four hours and 19 minutes because the show was entertaining. Yeah, it's entertainment. That's really what everyone is there for. Yep. <laughs> entertainment value. And, and you know, so and for so long there was this whole thing about, you know, Oscar parties. Obviously that has not really happened in the same way with the pandemic and everything. So there's that factor as well. But like Oscar parties and this kind of build up towards the Academy Awards. And I mean, I even remember when I was a kid and a teenager and my parents would be like, no, you absolutely have to fucking go to bed because... <laughs> It is. It just keeps on running. I'm like, but I want to know who won Best Picture. Like, and that—that <laughs> yep. that is 
it's that's beginning to seep away and i don't think it's because of the films that are being nominated or anything like that but it's because it it's coming off more and more like this chore that that they're performing not an actual like aren't we so excited about films right and that's really what it is like seeing the in memoriam thing seeing like that kind of the magic of the movies etc it's it's a great selling point for hollywood if they do it correctly yeah well in doing making these announcements a month before the show feels so reactive and it's like what are you reacting to you know like if they were going to make these changes they should have been announced last summer they announced rule changes about every june that's when the governors meet and vote on stuff and so it's like okay if you're going to make these kinds of changes do it in june way 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 before we're anywhere close to even thinking about the oscars not because then we'll have forgotten, but because then you have time to get buy-in from people and really build up like, okay, yeah, it sucked that we had to make that decision, but this is what we're going to do with what we have, you know? And, and that's where I think that's one of the biggest mistakes they made was making this announcement in February, like at the end of February with a month to go. Yeah. I, I think that that makes sense as well. It's I it's it's unfortunate and like I say I'm 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 afraid that I might like give up my usual Oscar tradition of just getting blind drunk by nine o'clock <laughs> and watching the Oscars and being like I missed the whole um <laughs> the moonlight thing. Oh my gosh. I was so intoxicated that I was just like, all right, I'll land one. I'm just gonna and like I wasn't paying attention. And then like I was like, oh my god, moonlight what? What? What just happened? Like, yeah. So on I had my I had my personal <laughs> blog at that time and I would do these play by plays. I did it last year with um with We Live Entertainment because I was just like, you know, I'm gonna bring that back. It was fun. And I would do a play by play where it's like five oh three, this is what's you know, the opening monologue or whatever. Yeah. And I would like put in jokes, quote like meaningful quotes from some of the speeches, stuff like that. It was really fun. And so um the night of that ceremony, it was like the weekend of my fortieth birthday. And um so I had a friend in town and we didn't stay at my house. We like got a, like her husband was so sweet. He sent her down, like got us a hotel so we could like stay somewhere nice. You know, it was so fun. And so we're like in our hotel room watching the Oscars and I'm doing my play by play on my laptop. And um, <laughs> so it gets to the like they're up there. It's, you know, Faye and Warren are up there to read off Best Picture. And I wrote La La Land wins Best Picture before they even opened the card. So then they open it, the whole thing happens, faces La La Land, I'm like, yeah, I knew that, I knew. And then I told, I told my roommate, like, as as uh, Justin Horowitz or whatever his name is, was up there, Jordan Horowitz, uh, was was accepting. <laughs> I, I told my friend, I was like, um, yeah, you, you can go ahead and turn this off. I don't need to watch all this. <laughs> I'm really upset because Moonlight should have won. And then that was when we realized, wait, something's wrong. Something's happening. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was it was crazy. So uh, we almost missed it because I almost just turned off the TV because I was mad. <laughs> well, and I, I think, you know, to, to that to that point, I think that that's, that's one of the other things that the Oscars kind of cultivates. And one of the reasons why we don't want to cut people out, we don't want to cut down the runtime and things like that is because 
part of it is the spontaneity. The, the things that we remember a lot of the time about the Oscars is the spontaneity of how people react, mm-hmm. right? You know, I, I remember Roberto Benigni climbing over all of the chairs, <laughs> right? Like yeah. that was really memorable. The, the, the moonlight, and I'm not saying that we want the thing that happened with Moonlight to happen again, but that kind of the live sense of like, this is something that is happening in real time. This is something that is not scripted. Taika Waititi pretending to be asleep when nobody knew who he was yet. And I was like, who's that guy? Why is he doing that? <laughs> Little did I know. Yeah, that, but that kind of thing is the things that we remember, right? Yep. It isn't, it, it's hardly sometimes even the, the you know, who won. You, you just said a beautiful mind won. I was just like, did it? I didn't know that. <laughs> like I, but I do remember, I do remember Whoopi Goldberg in that costume. Yes. Like, yeah. That's something that has stuck in my mind. And so, but that's the thing. It's entertainment. At the end of the day, mm-hmm. this is supposed to be entertaining, right? We're supposed to be entertained by what is happening on stage. And part of that entertainment is also the intensity of the reactions, the emotions of the people. And the more you try to control that and sort of worry about, speeches running over and runtime and you know oh we haven't done enough x y or z the more boring it becomes and yeah. you just you kind of just tune it out right so that's what's going on with the oscars right now i'm certain you know who knows what will happen next week uh i did not think that we would be talking about this for this long <laughs> one thing i am very certain of though and then we can move on is that the academy is not going to change course this is going to happen yeah and and i'll be i will be interested to see what the result actually is yeah um but i i have my own predictions about that well i think i think either way the academy is kind of screwed and this process is kind of screwed because if the vote if the viewership still ticks down abc is gonna go well that didn't work gotta try something else yeah they're not gonna understand why it didn't work and if it ticks back up, they're gonna go, oh, see, that was that worked. Let's let's figure out let's, more stuff to cut. Let's cut out all of the categories. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like either way, it's it's bad. So I mean, I knew, I want them to just go like full surreal weirdness, like higher, <laughs> higher, like higher. You know, I don't know. Um, Alma Dovar to to do <laughs> to do the Oscars telecast and just like let him go to town like make it fucking weird and we will watch it and talk about it because I will be there and just be like I just want to see what happens next. This no, is just- you know what we need is the Oscars. So I'm gonna just say this name for everything. We need the Oscars directed by Kathy Yan, where <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just-, just get random random uh animations thrown in there like anytime a presenter comes to the stage or somebody wins it's like a list of grievances they have against somebody else (laughs) just make it entertaining like entertain me that's what that is what i'm sorry that's what hollywood is there for they are there to entertain me yes that is literally their job that's that's your job you have the the resources of one of the the, the you know this whatever it is now the second biggest film industry in the world you have all of this money all of this power all of this talent please just entertain me like you yeah. you should be able to do this you would think uh well speaking of entertainment and the oscars <laughs> you know i Can we talk I about mean, gay cowboys now let's talk about gay cowboys so <laughs> 
recently this honestly broke my heart because i love sam elliott so much and then i'm like oh sam elliott no don't do this to me don't say these things um sam elliott recently was kind of back in the news um because he went on mark maron's wtf podcast and you know this this is a podcast that does tend to, to you know do as the IndieWire article said gloves off conversation right so yeah. it encourages people to to kind of say what they think and feel um and and elliot kind of went off on uh jane campion's the power of the dog which is kind of, of kind of nominated <laughs> for best picture and he got really upset about it he was very upset um about uh, first of all about the the fact that campion is is from new zealand and she filmed the film in new zealand um and you know nobody tell him about sergio leone well yeah let's we'll talk about that in a minute but but the fact that you know she's and i love that he says she's a brilliant director i just hate this particular movie so you know (laughs) give i'll give him credit for that he's not saying that she's a bad director at all um but you know he was saying things like you know what does she know about the american west why in the fuck does she shoot this movie in new zealand and call it montana montana and say this is the way that was maybe because there was a pandemic going on um well yeah and and also tends to be cheaper to shoot in certain places and like all kinds of things right i mean i was convinced that it was montana when i learned that it wasn't i was like oh wow she did a really good job making new zealand look like montana cool yeah um which is not unusual in hollywood as we know sam uh so he went off on that but the the big one that people picked up on and this is what i think is was the most disappointing um is is that he he picked up on the fact that you know there's a heavy homoerotic subtext allusions to homosexuality they're all running around in chaps and no shirts i'm trying to remember when that happened um there's all these allusions to homosexuality throughout the fucking movie and as Marin pointed out that's i think that's what the movie is about um (laughs) so so this uh, a few people were like this this is very much like harold they're lesbians like like, it's just like i think they might be gay dude i think that might be what this movie is about um i don't know or at least one of them is and someone else uses that against him yeah there's there's like some 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 stuff about gayness there but by the way spoilers if you haven't seen power of the dog we're probably gonna spoil it a little bit (laughs) it's on netflix we've talked about it numerous times go watch it like turn this off go watch and then come back and listen to the rest of our conversation exactly um so so that that was like the, the kind of the substance of elliot's anger about about this and i do the the element that i understand coming from him is this whole thing about non-americans kind of taking over this myth of the american west and and using it and i kind of i'm always a little bit annoyed when you get particularly brits using like you know the american south or um or the american west as like something to impose their own views on oh yeah i kind of i kind of get that like i kind of get the discomfort there it's not unusual it's not something that makes me want to not watch a film um but i do sort of get that annoyance right well and and it doesn't necessarily make me not want to watch a film but i definitely do take it into account when i'm kind of thinking about the film and how how effective it is and what it's trying to do yeah, and how much it how much I feel like it understands the culture itself right mm-hmm. um, and there are definitely films that I've seen that I, I felt like the filmmaker or the actors didn't really un- 
understand the culture that they were representing yeah. and i mean and that happens all the time in hollywood i'm not saying you know this is specific to british or australian or, or <laughs> new zealand filmmakers but yeah we tend um, to do that to other countries all the time yeah but i understand that discomfort and and uh and you know the kind of the caricaturing of certain elements of of america generally uh i i always joke that that brits think that all that americans do is speak through their teeth and shout and it's true if you watch a lot of british films or british television shows where they're american characters americans just like shout all the time and i'm like i'm sorry <laughs> that you are upset that you can hear what we're saying and we're not fucking <laughs> muttering under our breaths all the time as an american who lived in britain for quite some time like i tell you right now the reason why i shout is so that you can fucking hear me and you can't like pretend that you didn't we are a loud people <laughs> anyways oh, i love you <laughs> uh so that element like i i kind of understand where what elliot's annoyances at, at that level the issue of homosexuality and that was the thing that that people really did pick up on because a lot of what he was saying was you know fairly homophobic um i'm not certain whether he intended it that way but he it's definitely you know definitely on the on the line um and and one of the things that i found interesting is that there was this kind of attitude this pushing back against this like well but the american west story the myth is these like man's men right um and and that's true like a lot of a lot of the um a lot of the early westerns are very much about men riding horses together uh and but to to ignore the fact that there's a heavy dose of homoeroticism in a lot of those films and the one that a number of people uh, picked up on was red river which uh, i sent karen karen i sent you the one of the clips from red river which <laughs> yep. involves montgomery clift who is a gay man right he was not explicitly out but a lot of people knew that he was gay um montgomery clift and i forget the other actor um no, i'm blanking on his name but so the two of them talk about their guns and they trade guns and they admire each other's guns and there's this whole conversation just like oh well that's a real nice gun you got there it's just like yeah well, you want to see mine like, like they literally say these things and then they shoot together <laughs> and they're like firing at this kid just like oh you you got the best gun but i'm second best right <laughs> they have this entire thing where they're comparing literally comparing guns right and is it is it sexual yeah it's sexual it is very sexual like these are two men who are caressing each other's weapons um a lot has been talked about and written about about the homoeroticism not necessarily the homosexuality right we're not necessarily saying that that these characters are intended to be going off and sleeping together right but there's a lot of homoeroticism in kind of classic westerns um, one of the other ones that I love to reference is Vera Cruz with Gary Cooper and Burt Lancaster, which has a similar scene where they're like, let me show you how well I can shoot. No, let me show you how well I can shoot. You know, I have a bigger gun. Well, I, I'm going to pick up this gun that's even larger, right? All of this is homoerotic, right? It's about male relationships. And there are definitely homosexual and homoerotic elements to those throughout the history of westerns and to ignore that i think is is to 
kind of fall into the trap that a lot of people do. This is hardly unusual. It's being like, no, it's just men. It's just bros being men and men being bros and guys being pals. It's like, no, I, th I think that they really are talking about about male relationships. And, you, you know, you're talking about a set of films in which women very sometimes don't show up at all, right? There are no women in some Westerns or only show up to kind of reassure us that the men aren't gay. Uh, and and beyond that, you know, Westerns do have that mythos to them, but they're also, they can be very subversive. They can kind of deal with masculine relationships. And that's what Power of the Dog is about. Power of the Dog is very much about masculinity and about male relationships with men, particularly. Um, and they make some of those things that are implicit in some of the earlier Westerns more explicit. You know, there's no doubt that um, Phil and Bronco Henry had a sexual relationship. That is heavily, that's referenced in the film. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that that, it, that is basically what Elliot is uncomfortable with, obviously, is the fact that you're making the subtext into text. Right. Yeah. And, and well, I mean, I think one of the, one of the problems here starts off with this weird, um, it's almost like sometimes people forget that gay people didn't just start existing in the 20th century, like in the later part of the 20th century. Um, be, and by that, I mean, like just what he's talking about in terms of his his problems with problem of the dog power of the dog is that it's almost like he he's trying to say that there weren't gay cowboys yeah and i think that's <laughs> such a ridiculous like line of thought to even have um obviously they couldn't be open um but the idea that they just didn't exist at all is such a uh, such a a historical argument to make in the first place and then um and then yeah to like what you're saying like so much of what we had previously seen in the genre was subtext sometimes um disguised well enough that people who didn't want to see it couldn't and sometimes pretty overt and if you didn't see it you just were ignoring it uh, and pretending it's not there but in this case it's not only uh, it's not only text, it's the point. It's a big part of the entire point of the entire film. Yeah, and, and one of the things that, that Elliot says is is that, and I think that his his point here got a little bit muddled, but what he said was, the myth is that they were these macho men out there with cattles. I just came from Texas where I was hanging out with families, not men, families, big, long, extended, multiple generation families. Um, and so I think that what he is saying there is that that the the story is that it was these macho men, but it wasn't, right? Mm -hmm. It was actually these families from part again, I think you're kind of misreading power of the dog there. That is about a family. It is about familial relationships, right? Specifically about the relationship between the brothers and their kind of surrogate father who also takes on this sexual component. Um and the the fact that these people are very isolated, that they are these, that they're a family, but they're not really a family, right? And there's been a rot that has essentially crept in there, literally yeah. and figuratively, right? So I think the power of the dog falls into the kind of mythos of the American West in a really excellent way. 
Um, and, you know, we, we talk a lot about revisionist Westerns and I swear to God, almost every Western now is revisionist. That's what they're trying to claim. Um, but kind of the breaking down of the myth of the West has been done a lot and in a lot of different ways. But whenever you get a Western, you still have a story that has to be engaged with the past of the genre. Um, and that's what Power of the Dog is doing. So they, they say taking some of these things that are subtext that you can you can ignore, but but like like I said with that clip from Red River, if you're not you like I I mean I'm I I think it's gay. <laughs> like watching them, it's like, yeah. yep, they're they're comparing the lengths of their guns. Yeah. Exactly. Um, I don't know well, how else you take that. It's just I mean, sometimes a gun is just a gun, but not in most Westerns. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But also, just going back to the, the myth-busting part, I think, just to bring this back around, and to also make a, a you know, counter-argument to what he was saying initially, I think that is why a filmmaker like Jane Campion, who's not tied to the American West, but is tied to this beautiful material written by someone who was from Montana, who was a gay cowboy, Thomas Savage. Um, I think that's why someone like her was actually well-placed to make a film like this, because she is trying to... Um, uh, it's not it's not tell the truth, or... or I, I don't know. I, I just... I think because she's not as connected to having to hold to certain... Um, certain parts of the myths that we have like she's not as tied to that she's distanced from it a little bit more which makes her gives her the free reign to be a little bit more honest yeah and and also being a woman and being a female filmmaker who has a, a, an interest in the representations of masculinity she can represent masculinity in a different way than a male filmmaker would right i mean i think when we talked about um power of the dog not that long ago, we talked about the fact that that she brings not just her her innate talent as a director, but also the fact of femininity and the looking at masculine relationships within that um, is is important. So she's bringing something new to the table, right? I I would have to look at a list to know how many women have actually directed westerns. But I can't imagine that the list would be very long, like actual films set in the American West, right? Um, that are dealing with things like cowboys. And that's what she's doing here. And she's exploring. And I, and I don't think that, you know, we shouldn't look at this as this is the only Western, right? This is a facet of the Western that, and she is exploring it in a different way than we've seen at, while at the same time using the genre. Right. So, yeah, she is kind of using that mythos of the loner cowboy. That's part of the myth making that, that Phil is engaged in. He's got this whole myth about Bronco Henry that he's constructed. Um, and the film and the other characters begin to kind of chip away at that and threaten it and reveal things about it. And so part of it is about the chipping away of that myth and the toxicity of myth making, um, particularly when it comes to masculinity. I just, of course, had to look and see <laughs> how many westerns <laughs> I could find directed by women. Um, it's interesting because and this this list is written written or directed by women, and there's a lot of Frances Marion in here. Um, that doesn't surprise me. Not at all. No, she wrote 
a lot of things in the 20s. It looks like mostly silence. Um, the only one I think that really, at least just glancing through this list, um, the only ones that I think really would um, kind of fit into the criteria that you're talking about would be a couple of films from Kelly Reichert. Oh, yeah. Um, Meek's Cutoff, First Cow, The Ballad of Little Joe from 1993. It's by Maggie Greenwald. So That's one That's one that I do not know. That's interesting. Yeah. So they exist, but they are exceedingly rare. <laughs> yeah, which, which is what I would expect, right? Particularly yeah. from this genre, right? Exactly. Which is so heavily, you know, attuned to masculinity and about yeah. masculinity. Um, I mean, I think we can maybe reference very, very briefly the fact that some of the most iconic Westerns were made by Sergio Leone, um, (laughs) and, and other Italian filmmakers as well. The spaghetti Western is like a thing. It's a subgenre. It's, it's a... Let's talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like, uh, what was the other, oh, there's another one. Um, uh, obviously the Clint Eastwood, um... The various Clint Eastwood westerns. There, there was a whole collection that was on Criterion for a while, and I watched a whole bunch, like uh, "Death Rides a Horse," and and they are these. They're some of them are very violent and weird, um, but they are like they're European films, right? They they're very and in certain in a certain sense they're very Italian films <laughs> that are about the American West and that are giving kind of another perspective on the American West. Yeah. Um, and and again, I would never say those are the only westerns because they're not. Because they're they're just another facet of the genre. Yeah. Exactly. So Sam Elliott, I love you. I love your mustache. Please don't do that. Can like, we just... also can we also just talk about like just two last things and then we can move on to the yeah. other fun <laughs> things? But first of all, Sam Elliott's from Sacramento, California. Come on. <laughs> Come on, dude. No. <laughs> And also, um, he is taking issue with Jane Campion making a movie set in Montana, but he's acting like cowboys in Texas and cowboys in Montana are the same. They are very not. (laughs) (laughs) The American West, that's part of the problem, is the American West is so mythologized that we act like, we talk about it as if... It's just this one big nebulous thing. And we don't look at the subcultures within that whole mm-hmm. idea, you know? Yeah. Well, some some of the best Westerns that I've seen have actually been things that are like set in Nevada. Yeah. Um, and places like that where there's a lot of snow and ice. And that produces a very different kind of Western than the ones that you get when, you know, so many of them are set in Texas or, or further south where it's desert primarily, mm-hmm. right? Um, but, you know, I, I recently watched, um, Day of the Outlaw, which is a kind of a, a sort of a typical outlaws invade a small town kind of story, but it's all set in, I think it's set in Nevada. It's either Nevada or Wisconsin. Um, and it's, it's, uh, like coated in snow, right? So everything that they're dealing with is this massive snowstorm. Um, and it produces a very different experience than the ones that are, you know, set in kind of the hot and rugged terrain of places like Texas. Yeah. Yeah. It really changes things. It does. So Sam Elliott, stop. Just don't. Just don't, man. <laughs> don't disappoint me like this. <laughs> Speaking think, of disappointments. I, well, I just, I think that my, my, 
I mean, I'm really disappointed with the content of what he was saying, but the fact that he would just choose to use the phrase, that movie is a piece of shit. Yeah. That was really disappointing. Yeah, the the way that he went off on it was disappointing as much as yeah. what he said. Yeah. Speaking of disappointments. <laughs> West Side Story. <laughs> um, I'm going to get eviscerated for this one. Although I haven't yet, so... And I, I made my, my perspective known on Twitter. So, you know, one never knows. But uh, West Side Story, which is now available to stream on Disney Plus and HBO Max, uh, which is the new uh, adaptation, I guess we would say, of uh, the 1961 musical and the Broadway musical West Side Story. Um, it's been, now been adapted by Steven Spielberg. It's nominated for some Academy Awards, including Best Picture, I believe. Yeah, uh, it's like seven Oscars. There's been, um, you know, a number of, a lot of praise kind of being heaped upon this film. What are your feelings about this film, Karen, before I go off? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, 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 I still don't know. I want to go back and watch it again because when I saw it the first time, it was like first big night that they did screenings of it and I'm like a huge crowded theater full of like critics and industry people. And those, those situations actually make it really hard to, to fully know how I feel about a movie. Like there's, there's some like bias that goes into that. What I do know is that when I was watching it, I was entertained by a lot of it and I was like, eh, okay, I don't, I didn't hate that it exists. I, I was initially, when I found out they were even remaking it, I was like, just go watch the 62, like, eh, you know, but when I was watching this, I was like, you know what, actually it is nice for, for kids to actually get to see a movie that has kids that look like them that really that doesn't have a bunch of actor white actors in brown face and stuff like that and so that aspect of it i was like eh, okay but the story makes me so crazy <laughs> and they tighten the timeline down so much like it's already such a like you and i have talked about this a lot i've talked about this on this podcast a number of times where I really feel like people completely misinterpret what the point of Romeo and Juliet is in the first place. And I think that this just puts it on hyperdrive. And so it's like the the original film, to my memory, it's been a few years since I've watched it. But to my memory, it at least takes place over a few days. This shrinks everything down into less than 24 hours. It's like they're willing to blow up their entire lives and risk everything for someone they literally just met yesterday. That's it's just it's so mind-blowingly stupid because it doesn't get called out. <laughs> it does not get called out. It gets treated like a romance and it's not. <laughs> well, <laughs> I I do agree with you about Romeo and Juliet as, as we've discussed before. I think that Romeo and Juliet is about teenagers being really fucking stupid right yeah which which to the point of being you know a 14 year old and a 16 year old is like yep that makes sense i would right. definitely but when you age them that. up because one of your actors is kind of problematic and so you're like oh we can't have this <laughs> one be a kid then it just makes it stupider because then now you have 20 year olds doing this shit well and this is what i this is one of the things that i i had a problem with exactly um watching it partly through i was like wait a minute how 
old are they supposed to be? <laughs> and then at one point, uh, um, what's not Anita? Damn, now I'm Maria. Maria, God, sorry. It's okay. Maria says that she's eighteen. Yeah. Right. And she's supposed to be the young one, right? So she's she younger than everybody else. Yeah. She's she's like a, a a cleaner, right? At at Gimbel's. Yeah. Um. And so, okay, so she's eighteen, which means that everybody else is in their twenties. Yeah. Um. And at that point, I was just like, so what we've done is we've taken a story that's about teenagers, right? It's about teenage gangs who are kind of pretending to be adults basically they're sort of mimicking the behavior of the adults around them and they're playing with real knives and real guns and real lives right but they're kids and now we've made them into actual adults <laughs> who go to a dance at a high school okay because <laughs> why wouldn't you <laughs> i that that one i was like but see that's where i was beginning to get confused i was like are they supposed to be high school students yeah because because they're at the high school why are they at the high school if they're not high school students but they're not right. and like they're and yeah like granted they're visibly older but hollywood has a long history of having you know 20 somethings and even 30 somethings play yeah. teenagers right so i wasn't necessarily bothered by the fact that they all looked older i was bothered by the fact that they were all supposed to be older <laughs> yes and so it becomes the story of adulthood right and so yeah it does then make you begin to question all of these like relationships and the relationship between tony and marie and i'm just like but they're like i mean 18 is not adult adult but it's more grown up than you know 16 mm -hmm. um and and yeah like all of those things are something like this is just i'm confused well <laughs> and nobody understand that's the thing is like and nobody says at any point dude you just met him yesterday it's no tony's a problem be careful of him no one says this has been 12 hours <laughs> also also tony's i don't think that this is true of the original of the original film certainly i don't know about the broadway show but tony's like just out of prison he's like yeah. on parole and i'm like what well so honestly i think that was one of the elements like there are certain things where i thought okay this this actually helps make things make a little bit more sense in a way like i well i don't know if makes sense is the right phrasing but i think it, it kind of it adds some stakes to it like okay well part of the problem here is tony can't get involved in this fight between the jets and the sharks because if he does he's gonna go back for a long time i think he, i think the sense is that he was essentially in juvie but he you know so like i don't know anyway um so it's like okay so there's some stakes there for him they set that up so he can't get in trouble again otherwise he's gonna go away for a really long time but that's it does it doesn't carry through enough like mm. that they keep they keep harping on that but it doesn't go into his real logical thinking process. It's just more of like, okay, how do I get around that rather than why am I not using this reality as like part of my motivation for not being an idiot? Yeah, it, it's, see, I, I thought that, and again, I, it's, it's so tempting to compare this to the original film because the original film is, for, for a lot of us, it's our only experience of West Side Story. Um, or it's, you know, it's definitely the major, it's, it's definitely the the only cinematic touch point for for this for the the new one right um 
but one of the things that I understood in the original film is that it was essentially like you grow up, right? And you grow apart. Yeah. So what has happened is Tony has kind of, he's decided that I'm, you know, I've got a good job. I'm trying to do what's right. I'm trying to take care of my parents. I'm, you know, kind of moving on with my life and Riff and the Jets have not, right? Yeah. They, so there's there's been a division between them, which makes sense if you're talking about 17 year olds. Right. right. Because you've got these boys who are turning into men and they are in a very difficult situation. And one of them is, is moving in one direction and one of them is moving in another. And so all of that makes sense. All of the intensity of emotions and passions and anger and fear, et cetera, all of those things again make sense if you're talking about teenagers. If you're talking about 20 somethings, they still make sense, but not in the same way. Um, and, and it becomes, it becomes less stupid in some ways, right? Just like, no, you're, de you're doing this deliberate, you're making deliberate choices. This isn't just passion, right? And, and it loses, I think, some of the tragedy of the story to begin with. Because the tragedy of the story really is that this, these kids should not be doing this. These kids should not be living like this. Right. Um, they're, they're kids pretending to be grownups and they're pretending with real knives. And, you know, when, um, in the original film, when Riff is killed, it's shocking. They're like, we've been, you know, they've been fighting with knives and, and, um, and chains and all this. And then suddenly just like, oh my God, someone's dead. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's, what's so shocking about it. Everyone is shocked that yeah. it has gone this far and it's horrifying. Um, and I just didn't get that same sense in the film. I have other issues with the film. The, the other one is that as great of a director as Spielberg is, he fell into the problem that I have with a lot of contemporary musicals, which is that he cuts the dance scenes to ribbons. Yeah. And following the movement of the dancers for me was next to impossible because you get like a shot of them beginning a movement and then there's a cut and we're at, we have the end of the movement at another angle. So I'm not actually seeing the dancers moving mm -hmm. in the same way. And it's, it's supposed to create this kind of kineticism, but I'm like the kineticism needs to be in the dancers. Right. It's in, and you can move the camera in a whole lot of ways to show what the dancers are capable of. But a lot of the time I felt like it was just sort of like, oh, isn't this a cool trick? Yeah. You know? Well, and I think that's one of the reasons I never said it out loud or, you know, typed it on Twitter. But I think that was one of the reasons I was personally getting frustrated with all the praise on that scene where they enter into the dance, which is... <laughs> Don't say it. <laughs> it's shot and edited, edited well, uh, because that is not one continual take and everyone seems to not know this, but... It is stitched together and it's done really, really well. But that's the point is like they they did that one shot, but everyone's praising that and ignoring the fact that they didn't do similar things with all these other big dance numbers, which could have really made this feel like a big pageantry, you know, thing. And it could have really felt like, wow, I am watching an old Hollywood musical. Instead, it didn't feel like that it felt it was it there were times yeah. where it was very like disorienting and and like I, I don't understand why we're doing this I want to watch her you know or whatever so yeah I, I want to watch the performers I want to yeah. see their their abilities and 
and all of these people are very talented, right? With, mm-hmm. with the exception of the leading man. Right. Um, these folks uh, all came from Broadway. They are trained. They know what they're doing. Yeah, they're they're good dancers. They're good singers. I want to see them do it. Yeah. Right. I want to actually experience that, and and that's where the energy is going to come from, and that's where the excitement is going to come from. Yeah. It's not going to come from how many cuts you can do, how the camera you know moves. Just like no, let show me the dancers. Show me what they're doing. And yeah. I'm going to get energy as a result of that. Right. Um, yeah. I, the, I do... Go on. Sorry. I was just saying, on the subject of the leading man, <laughs> <laughs> I, I will say it was pretty funny because when I was watching it the first time, I, you know, he starts, he comes in, he starts singing and I was like, oh, he's actually not as bad as I expected. That's not a compliment. <laughs> I mean, it, has, it kind of is. But, I mean, I w- he wasn't he wasn't terrible. And I thought he was going to be just atrocious. And I was like, oh, he's actually not that bad. And then he starts singing with Maria. And I was like, oh, dear Lord. Why did anybody ever think that was a good pairing? Like, who approved that chemistry test? Like, what the heck is going on here? It was so... They were so night and day. She's just singing circles around him. And it was so, it was just such a mismatch that I don't understand why they were, like, I don't understand why they were so determined to put him in this movie. Uh, yeah. He's very I, weird. I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I, Tony, Tony is a difficult part in some ways because he is kind of bland. <laughs> um, the other male characters are a lot more interesting. Bernardo's more interesting. Riff is oh, more. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Not any. It's kind of. It is kind of like Romeo. Romeo actually isn't the best male <laughs> role no. in Romeo and Juliet. Um, but yeah, he. I mean, I. But you at least need to have someone whose singing ability can match matches, Rachel yeah. Ziegler. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. I. Don't, I think that it was kind of like because everybody else is sort of unknowns in terms of yeah. hollywood right and i think that there was this push do we have to get a known star unfortunately they chose one that was going to get accused was of, known for the wrong reasons of uh sexual assaults <laughs> but also come on there are other 23 25 year old guys running around yeah. hollywood that can sing yeah I would have, like, you know, since we're casting them up, I would have even been fine with older actors. Like, I mean, yeah. not old, old actors, but older actors. Someone there, yeah, like you say, fuck, man, why didn't you hire Tom Holland? Right? Who can dance. He can dance and he can sing. <laughs> <laughs> Actually. Uh... Huh. Actually, I think that might have worked better. Tom Holland. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it would have worked better. It might have worked pretty well. <laughs> hmm. Oh, there you go. So, yeah, I, I I do agree with you that I like the fact that, you know, I've, it's it's nice to have an update of this story where we're not seeing white people in brown face. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, we actually have Spanish being spoken. And, and there is definitely, and I think that some of the performances are really good. But the film overall is just... I, I was sitting there, and even though it's not a shot for shot remake in any sense, I was sitting there going like, I don't know what the point is here. Right. I don't know why this is happening. Like, I would love to see Spielberg make a musical. Maybe. I don't know. The way that he films dancing is definitely not for me. But the fact that he chose kind of a film that is so iconic or a story that is so iconic and didn't 
do much more with it than right. what the original did, despite despite the definite um, changes in actually, you know, casting casting people that were not white to play Puerto Rican characters. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, I was like, I don't. This isn't doing anything. This it just is kind of thing. And that's the problem. That's yeah. that's really the problem. And and we see that with a lot of remakes in general, is that that it tends to be focused on like the things that we liked about the original and and making a few changes to the things we don't and what happens is the heart and soul of the story and the tent the the real point of the story and the intention of it kind of become secondary and they start and when you have more and more remakes they start to become completely lost and it's really unfortunate and i honestly i think that is a big problem with this. This was an opportunity and and I thought they were going there like in the opening when it's this whole thing and like piles of rubble and the city is being gent like this part of the city is being gentrified and you know they're addressing that. I really thought they were going to dive more into how unfair it was that these people are being displaced from the neighborhoods that they've been in for so long and have been secure and now they're not. You know, I really thought that was going to be more of where they were going and I was interested and I was excited for that. And then it just, it just turned into focusing on this doomed love story. Yep. Yep. So West Side Story doesn't seem to be for us particularly. I'm, I'm happy that people like it. Um, I'm happy for Ariana DeBose, who's probably going to get an Oscar and good for her. That's awesome. Um, I am not in any way trying to take anything away from her. By the way, her Maria knocked it out of the park. She was phenomenal. I think she was the best thing about that movie. Um, but yeah, I think in general, it's just kind of, eh. It's, I'm happy other people are happy. I will move on to other things. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So let's move on to other things. <laughs> I wanted to mention, at least, and this is a film that came out a while ago, but is finally available on streaming. I can rent it. I rented it. <laughs> I had a great time with it. I, I think that some of the issues that you had with it are, are absolutely 100% valid, but I really liked it. And that is Five Cream. Uh, <laughs> scream. Scream Five. Which I'm so glad they actually make fun of that idea. Yes. <laughs> yes. I really like that. But that is what it is. It's 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 Five Cream. Let's, yes, let's talk about it. it always will be. <laughs> um, which is available now to rent uh, for uh, five or six bucks. So, and as far as I am concerned, it is absolutely worth it if you like the other Scream movies. And if you don't like the other screen movies, I do not know why you would even be interested in watching this <laughs> film to begin with. So yeah, it would make no sense. Yeah, it. I had a lot of fun with it. it it's um, it's very meta, as as a number of people have pointed out, which is the basis of the Scream franchise. I liked some of the the things that they played with with within it. I liked this whole idea of you know, oh, we're talking about a legacy sequel. Um, that's what this is, you know, you bring back the older characters and you introduce new ones and you've got this whole engagement with the past. Um, I, I liked a lot of that. I think that it's, it's a definitely an overlong film. It goes on there. There's a section in the middle that I was just like, okay, come on, let's, let's pick it up a little bit. Let's get to the next part. Yeah. Um, but I, I really just enjoyed it. I enjoyed the fact that they didn't, they didn't skimp on the horror. They didn't skimp on the violence. 
Um, it didn't have that same kind of energy, I think, that the earlier screen films did. And I include all of all four of them uh, mm -hmm. in that assessment because I love all four of them for different reasons. But you know, you, it didn't have that same kind of glee, I guess. And one of the things I really like about the Scream franchise is that sense of humor and amusement and aren't you entertained kind of thing that this is it's it's funny you know it's energized and uh this film was missing that to a certain degree that being said i think the third act is fantastic like the third act i was like i am there with you i cannot wait to see what happens next <laughs> yeah i i think ultimately when it comes down to it i had some very specific little quibbles with it but i think when it comes down to it my big the the big thing that kept me from just fully embracing it and going like yes welcome to the scream franchise was the lack of energy it felt like it took itself so much more seriously than the previous films did and because it wasn't super successful in some of the things that it was doing i think that that was a mistake and it really makes it stick out and not in the right way um from the rest of the the franchise yeah but... the pla the places where i think it, it gets the energy is when it's actually doing those those meta things like oh this is a legacy sequel right yeah. here's what so when you begin to get into those those things about the rules and um you know and the the more meta elements to it and in in some ways people complained about how meta it was i'm just like have you not seen these movies right like um, hi <laughs> that's the and... entire point of the series and I wish that they had gone harder in that direction because some of the, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but some of the, um, the turns that it takes, I was like, you needed to go harder on that. You needed to go more into the, this, this whole kind of concept of bringing back the older characters and bringing in new ones and why the killings are happening again. Yeah. Um, and I really wanted them to dig more into that uh, without necessarily revealing who the killer or killers were. Mm -hmm. um, but to just get into that a little bit more and play with that more. There was there was that there there's almost that sense of, of too much veneration. It's just like, oh, we love these movies so much that so we're going to kind of preserve them. It's just like, no, blow them up, blow them up. That's what Wes Craven would want you to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, and there are just certain things where, like, you're making this whole point that there were two killers in the original movie, and then you keep forgetting about one of the killers. I'm trying to not say spoilery stuff while also, like, making it clear what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's like they keep, they, they, like, would set up certain things, but then not follow through with it, you know, and yeah. not make it. Yeah, anyway, that was, that was just... Yeah, but the meta commentary I think was great. What it had to say about toxic fandom was spot on <laughs> and perfect. I cracked up and then I realized they were being serious about the elevated horror thing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, ha ha, that's why. Oh, wait, they, they, they mean that. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, and I liked, I generally liked the cast. Um but I didn't think they did enough with some of the characters. Yeah, I, I think that there would have been more mystery to a lot of it if they had built some of the characters more. And that and yeah. that's where, you know, like I said, going harder, actually, on some of the meta stuff, going harder mm -hmm. on these, you know, because 
obviously when they get to the point of talking about legacy sequels i was like ah yes of course this makes perfect sense because we and you know they even reference ryan johnson at one point. yeah <laughs> um and and fandom reactions and all of that it's just like go into that more like put me into that world right um instead of and they made it in places they made it secondary and i think that that's where it lost the momentum yeah. When they were really going hard on it, I was like, yes, this is, ex- I know what you're doing. I like this. I am there with you. And then they kind of lost it a little bit. And I was like, but go back, go back to that. That was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so like for, I know you really, you really enjoyed it more than I did. But for me, it was like, I liked the idea of the story. I liked, you know, um, I liked what the overall plot was. I liked that, I that, that whole concept. Um, I just didn't think it was carried through very well. And part of the problem, I think, is that I watched this immediately after binging one through four, like over the course of a couple of days beforehand. So it's like those were so fresh in my mind, which I mean, I've seen them a million times anyway. It's not like I don't remember them, but they were so fresh in my mind that then going into this, it felt so second tier that it just made it such a disappointing experience watching it. So maybe now with a little bit of distance, if I watched it again, I'd be like, oh, actually... Eh, this isn't bad, but yeah. I can see that. I mean, like I say, I had fun. I, I absolutely get the, the critiques of it. Um, it. It's it's one of those that, you know, it's not right up there. The first one's still the best. Thing, definitely. <laughs> um, I happen to, like, absolutely adore number four. I felt, I liked the fact that, you know, we had number four, which was kind of the, the millennial version. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we've got the Gen Z version. Yeah. <laughs> which... So for as a millennial, some of the directions that I was just like, yeah, that's what you get. That's what you get. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Disrespecting your elders. Um, <laughs> right. So Scream 5 Cream uh, is, is indeed available to rent now on all of the various digital platforms. And if you like the, the other films, I think you'll enjoy this one at the least. Um, was there anything else we wanted to talk about? Did you want to talk about another film that came out recently that you saw Um, yeah so there's a movie out this weekend uh colin farrell's in it it's called after yang and it's beautiful and you should watch it (laughs) (laughs) it's the colin farrell movie that's out this weekend all right the only one no uh (laughs) honestly after yang it's in theaters it's also on showtime and uh i'm just gonna say really quickly it's basically it's um set kind of in this not kind of it's set in the future we don't really know how far in the future um but it's set in the future and basically families that do international adoptions can buy these androids that come and live in their home and can be like a big an older sibling for these adopted kids to help them feel connected to their culture and so the movie is about um colin farrell and jody turner smith play this couple who've adopted a little girl from china she's now like six or seven but from the time they brought her home they had this android or techno sapien is what they call them in the movie named yang and now yang has shut down and they're trying to get him repaired but in the process of doing that they unlock some memories they didn't know existed and so it's this really beautiful film that gets into um like everyone's saying like oh it's about what it, what it means to be human and it is that but i think more than that it's about what it means to feel connected and to feel love and um and so I think it's a really beautiful movie. And so if you have the opportunity to check that out, I recommend it. It's definitely one of those, like, it's a slow burn film, 
but it's also a very compact like hour and a half so it it moves slowly but it's just really really lovely it's very delicate and um and just just good so there's that one and yes i did also see the batman um i did not love the batman which i'm sure everyone is surprised to hear i think <laughs> it is boring as hell it is three hours of dropping you into a world like i get that matt reeves didn't want to do a origin story like he was very clear i don't want to do an origin story and you know what i am all for that i think we have all these properties like why are we continuing to tell the story of what happened to thomas and martha wayne over and over and over again why do we need to see peter parker get bitten by a spider again you know like we don't need those origin stories again we know this the backgrounds of these characters so just make more stories about their experiences and just let it be kind of like james bond right so i'm totally in favor of that the problem is the version of Batman and Bruce Wayne that Matt Reeves gives us is one we have never seen on film before and is actually not even one specifically from a comic either. So you don't even have that as like, oh, well, if you had read these comics, you would know this guy. He's a culmination of a few different storylines from, from different iterations of that too. So this is a completely new version of the character and you're using that without giving us any origin so it just, it's like this right off the bat. I'm like, this doesn't really work. I don't understand what I'm supposed to know about this, this Lieutenant Gordon, who's not a commissioner yet. Um, who is Selena Kyle and how did she become Catwoman and why is she using that? She's living in like a crappy apartment with a roommate who may or may not be her girlfriend. Um, and they won't even commit to going there, you know? And so it's like all these things, which are just, they just don't develop any of the characters. And so over three hours, they're, they're building up this story. That's like set as this, you know, neo noir mystery, but you don't get enough about who any of these people are to care about why any of this is happening. And so it's, it's one of those where I, I finished the audience around me. It was just like, Ugh, what the hell was that? And so I was like, okay, good. I'm not alone in this. And then of course I get on Twitter and everyone's like, oh, the Batman's so amazing. And I'm just like, what, what movie did you all watch? Cause it's not the one they showed in my theater. I, Could not I, have been. <laughs> I have come to realize that, you know, anytime film Twitter reacts, just like you're not normal people. <laughs> and I say that, I said that is not a normal person, right? right. Like, they're just like, I, I should not imagine that this is the way most human <laughs> beings react to movies. Yeah. Like at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I just, yeah, it, it was, it was really interesting because I, it was one of those times and this doesn't happen to me very often. Um, but it was one of those times where I had this experience where it was like, I felt like I was on the same page with everyone I was in that theater with. Like so many times when I'll go to a big movie like that, it's crowded. It's like the first day people clap at the end. They're excited. They cheer. There was none of that. Like hmm. this audience was dead silent. Even things that I thought were supposed to be funny. Nobody laughed. It was just like, wow, we're all experiencing this pretty much the same way. So it was, it was kind of nice to not feel alone when I was watching a, a movie like this and not liking it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, then to just see all these other reactions, like, yeah, you people are crazy. <laughs> all right. So not, yes, after Yang, not so much the Batman. Yeah. 
Um, Colin Farrell's having quite a banner year, though. Right? Wow. Oh, my gosh. He's really doing a lot. Yeah. Well, and he's got that hot dad energy in After <laughs> I mean, he's walking around looking sad, but he's he so hot. Does, <laughs> yeah. He always he's got a, he's got sad eyes to begin with. So. He does. He always he looks does. a little sad, sad puppy eyes. But you at least have to turn on the first five minutes to watch this amazing opening. Like, there's this amazing dance sequence that they do in the beginning of the movie. I don't even want to explain why or how it even works, but it's awesome that right there is worth turning on the on after game cool well i i want to check that movie out anyways so sounds good awesome well i think that that is going to close us out for this week we've talked about a lot of different things and actually we are are hoping for this month that we're going to try to do some more focused episodes talking about female directors and um and the oscars and some like more feminist film criticism which people enjoy so we're going to try to do that a little bit more um, as always, we want to thank our patrons who include Adriana, Ali, Connor, Estefania, Heather, James, Kathleen, Cariata, Mason, Matt, Michelle, Monty, Nanina, Robert, Robert, Steve, Sharon, Tao, and Will. Uh, thank you so much, guys, for continuing to support us. If you would like to join their ranks, uh, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash citizen dame. We've got some welcome gifts going out. We have bonus episodes going up. Um, and we've got some other bonus content that uh, we're putting up really, really soon. And so there's going to be a lot more stuff on the Patreon really soon. Um, you can also go to our Zazzle store, zazzle.com slash citizen dame pod, where we have t-shirts and tote bags and masks and new things, most importantly, new things. And I will, our logo looks really cool on a t-shirt. Um, I really like I'm it. I'm excited and to see it. I haven't seen it on a t-shirt yet. I need, it looks I need, great on the stickers that showed up at my I, house. I need to send you a picture because it looks really cool. Awesome. Uh, it's very like, it's, it's subtle. It's subtler than our old logo. And I really like that. Nice. Um, you could also throw us a couple of dollars at Ko-Fi. That's ko-fi.com slash citizen dame if you don't make the commitment to Patreon. But we are kind of going heavy on the Patreon as much as possible. Um, you can read some of our stuff on our website. That's citizendamepod.com. Uh, I've got a review of Parallel Mothers up, which makes me write, by the way. Uh, and we've got a couple of other things coming up and uh, including some like Blu-ray reviews. I think Karen has a few reviews coming up. So check that out. That's citizendamepod.com. You can, of course, get us get in touch with us a multitude of ways. Uh, our email address is citizendamepod at gmail.com. Uh, we are on Twitter and Instagram at citizendamepod and on Letterboxd, where we will have more lists upcoming on at citizendame. Uh, of course, you can get in touch with us individually. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at lhbusiness. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Karen M. Peterson. We'll close this off for this week. We will talk to you later. Bye. Just give him a hand over here. Sure. It's a good-looking gun you were about to use back there. Can I see it? Maybe you'd like to see mine. Nice. Awful nice. You know, there are only two things more beautiful than a good gun. Swiss watch or a woman from anywhere. You ever had a good Swiss watch? Go ahead, try it. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, hey, that's good too. Come on, keep it going.
now I know who you'd be. You'd be Matthew Garth, wouldn't you? That's right. You're as good as they say you are. Maybe as good as me. 